Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Adam Ross, personal chef between Napa, California and Dallas, Texas. We get to talk about his career path, which had quite the trajectory working with chefs like Thomas Keller, working at the restaurant at Meadowood. We talk about kale. We talk about purveyors and their impact. We talk about hazing in the kitchen and wrapping your face in plastic wrap to slice onions and a familiar name blast from the past from one of our first episodes gets a shout out as well thank you as always for listening enjoy the show you know i think about 10 or 11 where i started really getting excited by food and that happened in uh in tampa when we moved to tampa you know it was a it was a little bit of a shock uh, even as a young kid. And uh, as I kind of discovered my love for for culinary, uh, you know, Florida isn't known for, Tampa, Florida isn't known for, you know, their booming culinary scene. But it's got uh, some fun restaurants to play around in. I would say that on a personal level, moving to Tampa uh, was kind of my first case of, you know, as a person, like kind of not fitting in. Florida has kind of a distinct culture. I kind of felt like an outsider. And I've moved around a lot just based on you know, working in the food service industry, you can move anywhere and do your thing. So I think it kind of was the first step in preparing me for being comfortable in my own skin. Do you see that as, as a strength or was it a challenge, like you said, not fitting in? I definitely see it as a strength. I mean, I've always kind of had a big personality. So it, uh, and I find it easy to fit in from, I think, the experience of moving around a lot. But that's, you know, very similar to restaurants. You can move from you know, one restaurant to another, even in the same town and feel like you're in a totally different world, depending on kind of the culture is like from, you know, Connecticut to Florida and then Florida to Colorado and then Colorado to Hawaii, Hawaii to California, and then California finally to Dallas. I've gotten a lot of chances to reinvent myself. When I kind of got a grasp on what my food was stylistically, changing places had a, had a large effect on that. I mean, I really like to highlight products that are regionally specific to certain areas. So when I moved from California to Dallas, you know, you're talking about a completely different landscape and growing season. So I think as a chef, you have to evolve, you know, as well as a, as a person. And I think I'm, I'm definitely stronger as a, uh, you know, fitting into a different environment as a person rather than as a chef. And I think honestly, the more you evolve as a person, the more, opportunity you have to evolve as a chef they don't happen in a in a vacuum which i think is important to your point so take us back to tampa you finally are in the food a little bit a little bit duck out of water but finding your way and you get in the industry pretty young talk about those early days of getting a job in the restaurants in tampa well i'm gonna take you way back to when i was just a a, a young lad um, when i was uh, 12 years old i was super excited to go to the sleepaway camp with my buddy Aaron 
I don't know what actually happened. I think this was one of those instances where your parents lie to you and tell you like, you know, the camp went bankrupt or something, but I ended up not being able to go and they had, you know, find somewhere for me to go during the summer. So my parents enrolled me in this cooking camp. At that time I was super into soup and soup was the third day and I hated the first day, which was salads and the second, third day was soup. And uh, my favorite soup was wonton soup. They passed out the recipes and the kid next to me got wonton soup and I got corn chowder. I don't know about you, but I've never been excited by a corn chowder, you know, on a menu. And I was making it and it looked gross. But uh, at the end of the class, you know, we all kind of passed around our, our soups for everyone to try. First one I went for was that wonton soup and it was bullshit, sucked. And then everybody started trying my corn chowder and just loved it. And that was the first time that I really saw, you know, the power that food had to change someone's expression or how their day is going and, and, and really just like, you know, light them up. And I think I got really attached to that and I started seeking that out. So that evolved coming home from that camp, you know, trying to do different dishes with ramen noodles and adding different spices and trying it out on my friends and my family. And then it just evolved to, uh, to I think that this is what I want to do, which coming from, you know, a 12, 13 year old to a parent must be in some ways jarring, in some ways relieving. I think back on especially days like out of high school and college where kids just had no idea what they wanted to do with their lives. On that note, I've never been able to relate because I had kind of a one-track mind on food since that, that cooking camp. I was so into it that my parents ended up taking me from a private school into a public school. They offered a large culinary program, seven electives that you could take, you could take two a year. And I just, I crushed them. I ran through them. They were like the highlight of my life. Yeah, I mean, it put me on a path to, you know, eventually go to Johnson Wales in Denver, got a scholarship through some of the programs that I did. My instructor through that whole thing, Chef Rick, really just one of the most incredibly nurturing, you know, molder of young minds and solidified this notion that cooking was for me. 20 years later, I'm looking back on that. I'm saying, you know, such a huge shout out needs to go to Chef Rick Siglio, still teaching at Sickles High School, still, I'm sure, pushing numerous kids into the, into the industry. He would, he would always be very specific about what to expect, painted a real life portrait that it wasn't going to be, you know, making cookies and muffins with mom every day. It was a totally different world. So just to have that kind of real life, the real life lessons being put to you as a 13, 14, 15 year old, it's good not to sugarcoat it because I didn't get anything sugarcoated after that in the, in the industry. Shit gets real fast in the industry. Did Chef Rick kind of spur you on to get your first job in an actual restaurant? In Culinary One, it was all food handling procedures and you know, foodborne illness and, and stuff like that, which it definitely should. But as a, uh, you know, a young kid, I was super excited to get my hands, you know, dirty and whatnot. And he saw that and he pulled me aside and he gave me, he gave me Kitchen Confidential, which was by no means on the reading list. You know, I was a little punk and I just, I loved kind of fighting authority or being, you know, in a, in a subculture. And I read Kitchen Confidential front to back and I was just slammed the book closed and I was sold. And I went back up to him in class and I handed the book back to him and I said, this is exactly what I wanted. Mind's blown, man. I was maybe 20 when I read that book and I was even like, holy shit, this is crazy. Oh my God, I would hide You're it 14, under my 15 like years old. It pretty much <laughs> yeah. is. The amount of blow done in bathrooms that are projected in that book is pretty insane. Yeah, all I wanted to do was be, you know, in one of those kitchens, you know, like I was on a pirate ship and just every day seemed exciting. And I knew that it wasn't 
you know, the same path it was that, you know, most people were chasing and I just wanted to be a part of it. Talk about being in the restaurant then. Was it instantaneous? Did you find your tribe right away once you got into the actual restaurant? Because it's a much different world as we're alluding to than what culinary 101 is in a high school class. Yeah, I would like to say that Chef Rick uh, definitely prepared me for a good amount that I was going to see, but... Uh, well, he gave you the right me, reading material, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, he did. So my first job, you know, I stumbled a little bit. My first two jobs, which I ran through very quickly. Uh, my first job was at uh, Sonny's Real Pit Barbecue as a dishwasher. And I like to say that I was the chef de partie of the salad bar, which was mostly just refilling things out of like plastic 15-gallon tubs. That was the first time that I experienced like an aggressive kitchen culture. And it really was just, I think, stemmed out of boredom. This wasn't like, you know, chef-driven barbecue or anything. It was like, we're bored and we want to fuck. I remember on my very first day, they like took me into the walk-in and they were like, go find the lines. They're in the back. I was in the back of the walk-in, you know, looking around like an idiot. And they just all started throwing lines at me. And so I like came home with like a, a welt on my head from a line. My mom picks me up and it's like, what the hell is going on over there? Never really fit in at uh, Sonny's, but definitely broke me into, uh, over like the three months that I was there, but it definitely broke me into the restaurant industry. Right away when you're talking about the limes, I'm instantly thinking of the hazing of go mop the freezer or find the bacon stretcher or yeah. quick, we got somebody just ordered 20 gallons of ice to go. <laughs> Grab the mayonnaise extractor. You know, it's, it's all those little things that... <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad that I went through it. It's shit that I would never do in my kitchen, you know, ever again. I think we're all a little bit more, you know, mature now. After that, I, uh, I worked for a, uh, a really interesting kind of concept in, you know, the early two, 2000s, which was a place called Dinner Done. People would come in and they would set up their meals for like the week. And it was mostly just prepping on our end. I got this job because the hours were 3.30 in the morning until 7.30 when I would go to school. And then they would open up at eight for people to come start setting up their, their weekly meals. Uh, I think my parents only, I think we broke every child labor law, you know, doing this because I was 14 or 15, you know, freshly 15, maybe working these crazy hours, you know, that on top of schoolwork, I just got super sleep deprived. I had snapped at our owner because he would always mispronounce Chipotle. He would say Chipotle. And I think just from a mix of like insomnia and just, you know, high school aggression that I just like went up. I think that's the only job that I walked out on. And I don't even remember. I think I was like midway through school being like, oh shit, like I just walked out. When you're getting no sleep and, you know, <laughs> a high school kid, shit's going to happen. So I stumbled, stumbled a little bit on my first two jobs. When did it actually crystallize for you when you said, okay, now I'm in restaurants, I'm in it, I'm going to start to take it seriously, which then led you to culinary school. And as you mentioned, Denver. I started working at, at this restaurant called uh, Catch 23. And it was like a Caribbean seafood restaurant in this West Park village of, uh, of Tampa. This was my first job on a line. I had had some prep experience now, so I got hired quickly. And just like it normally happens, you know, you get hired on, you know, one position, someone gets fired and you're immediately kind of thrust into another. It's so funny. You know, I look back on all these guys that I worked with and I can barely remember, you know, what I had for breakfast or what year or something happened, but I can remember everything about every guy that I worked with. The guy who trained me on my prep position, Delroy Powell, who was a uh, Jamaican 50, mid 50 year old 
like just like super gay and into like the club scene and would come wearing like the most ridiculous shit and was just such a character and so fun. he's the kind of guy who would like have his face wrapped with plastic while slicing onions in like what looked like booty shorts like just like the craziest dude you could have ever imagined um but he taught me he taught me all those stupid little tricks like wrapping your face in plastic wrap when you're slicing onions on a meat slicer um you know to get the job done fast and uh like had a had a really use a blender to work hard for you or you know how to really maximize your efficiency and that, that's the, the 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 kind of stuff that really set groundwork on how to think like a like cook um and then uh you know i had a chef there um named donnie troutman who you know credit to this guy for you know hiring this hungry to learn idiot you know straight out of high school you know to uh to work with i mean he would have to yell at me and tell me, uh, you know, how, how to do the right thing on almost every project that I did. But it always came with like a big belly laugh and uh, there was no expectation there. And, uh, you know, that was really helpful for me to make mistakes with a chef who wasn't going to, you know, throw me out or, you know, kick me. Um, my, the guy who I worked with on the line who really taught me the, the foundational skills of wine cooking, um, his name was Jesse. And, you know, I... I can't tell you how old he was because like as I age he always seems to be you know older than me and like which I guess he is but um like he always just seems like you know the the mentor of the line for me um and but realistically he was probably 28 or something and uh just had so much like adult shit going on he had all these girlfriends and you know he he would sneak me drinks after service and after a while, after about a year of working there, like the drinks no longer needed to be like hidden, like they were given as incentive and we would all play poker and I would gamble away my paychecks. And it was just this, this alternate life that no one else I think in my high school was living, you know? And I was like, this is restaurants, you know? Restaurants are about, you know, working hard, playing hard, getting into trouble. And it's, it's a gang of misfit toys, you know? <laughs> it's uh, you're putting a, a environment with people who depending on who you are like you, you might not ever associate with in real life you know you pass each other in a gas station you know you might not even hold the door I always try and hold the door then you're forced to spend you know 10 12 hours a day with them you know I think it really broadens up who you are and how approachable you are and I mean I just I look back on getting back to the point I look back on all those dudes and not only do I thank them for taking their time and mentoring me and being patient but also allowing me to have fun and I don't know if they realized that that is who I was, that I was a misfit just like them. And I like to get into trouble and stuff that made me feel like I was beyond my years. The, the kind of mixture of those two cemented the fact that there was nothing else that I wanted to do. Like this was, this was it. You're living the life. Uh, it's totally clear. Like every cliche thing that happens in restaurants literally happened to you. We, we just created another well, waiting well, movie, right? Remember like my baseline was Kitchen Confidential. So like, I'm sure I was egging them on too, you know, a, a bridesmaid party, like a bridesmaid party would walk in and I'd like look at Jesse and be like, eh, eh, like, are we going to make this happen? You know, like as a kid, you know, and uh, I, I felt like, like I was like living this double life. Like I would do all this like adult stuff and then I would go to, you know, school and I would tell my friends stories and make it sound like it was like the godfather. You came to Denver, you're going to culinary school there. So for everyone listening, 2007, 2008, I was the executive chef at Kevin Taylor's at the Opera House, Denver, Colorado, and you were in school. 
you had a job there, you in the kitchen, and I very distinctly remember my younger brother Mitchell were like, what did he call you? His little hecha? You know? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what he called me. <laughs> he was one like, of the kinder my... nicknames I've had over uh, the years. Dude, the worst. <laughs> uh, and anybody knows my brother is hilarious and he's also the worst, right? And so instantly you were like one of our brothers. It, it very much felt like that. So I was the big brother, the chef, and then and then you two troublemakers, as you mentioned. There's a couple things I want to embarrass you now for everyone listening. Go for it. It was very, very clear right away that you were super fucking talented. Your palate was really good. Your attention to technique was great. And at the same time, you wanted to fuck around more than anybody. I completely, <laughs> completely remember that. And always being like, Adam, come on, man. And it was one of those things where there was lots of other people that worked in that kitchen over the years that I'd be like, cool, that's all they got. But it was very clear, this kid, all he needs to do is focus. He should have my job. Like that was super, super clear. And I actually remember, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember there was kind of a time where I took you aside and I was like, I got to like shake this kid. I got to get this kid to really take it seriously. Well, we had a kitchen crew of maybe 12, 15 with full-time, part-time people. And I said, Adam, you are so talented. And right now, these are the exact verbiage I use. You are the weakest link in the kitchen. And I oh remember. God, I remember it like it was fucking yesterday. I can see shit. you in front of me. Like, and, and in those moments and in every moment after where, like, a chef was really leveling with me, I become three inches tall. I'm already a short dirt dude, but, like, I become three inches tall, and I'm just looking at this towering figure. Oh, God, dude. I, that, I do remember. I remember, like, it was yesterday. All of those moments, like, when that happens to me, I instantly, as much as I hate it, it forces me to go into tunnel vision and really internalize. Those are the moments that really shape you and that really shaped me. And I have said those exact same words of saying, you are so fucking talented, but you are the weakest link. I said that to two of my line cooks at 1313 Maine when I was an executive chef. And I was putting, I knew exactly how they felt. And I was instantly thinking about you. And there's a million kind of instances that I can use that on of, you know, I became a chef at an early age because I had made every fucking mistake that I could have. And I got yelled at about every little thing. And then what came out of my mouth when I, it was time for me was just, that same exact verbiage at somebody else because it had such an impact on me. And so seeing that kind of chain happen, almost a paying it forward, I'm saying something deeply impactful that was once said to you to someone else. I mean, it's like passing down an heirloom or something. It's, it's such a rewarding thing for me. So thank you for, for ripping me a new one. I truly appreciate it because in that moment, and I have lots of those moments, and speaking of my brother, we talk about a lot where he has, he is the most likable guy. He has so much short-term empathy, and we talk about how I have long-term empathy. And in that moment, I remember the look on your face, and I saw that look on a lot of face because I'm like such a radical candor kind of person that I was like, I just broke his heart. Fuck, I hope someday he'll forgive me. Like literally remember thinking that because if he does, it'll be because he did it. Like whatever it is for him, he'll, he did it. And I remember those moments. And there's some people over the years that have never forgiven me. And I have to own that. And there's other people that are like, man, I get it now. And I say that thing that I used to annoy the shit out of me when you said it. So reflecting on that is super, super important. And I'm glad that it had a positive impact on you. And you took it and ran with it. Because again, to embarrass you more, like for people who will dig into you a little deeper and know, working at with Thomas Keller and Meadowood and Alan Long and 30 Under 30 and Zagat, cooking for Bourdain, all these things that all of us dream about. 
remember in that moment being like, either he can do that, did, or he's just going to always be one of those burnout kids that like had the potential, but fucked around too much and like never went for it. So I'm so glad, so glad that you went for it. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and just give you the big old uh, uh, forgiveness bundle right now, so that you can sleep better throughout the years. Just know that I took that as only fuel to the fire, and that it helped me, and that I don't hate you, and I never hated you. Love it, uh, and I think that's important because we talk about the mentorship and things. It's important for us to try and figure out how we can best motivate people in again the short term and the long term. And I know that that's been something that you've taken with you to your point that you mentioned using those, those same words. And so everyone listening on either side of the equation, eventually you'll be on both sides of that equation. So know how important that is, is really what I want people to kind of take away with this. And so let's 180 because we all about going deep and we always like to play a little best served on icebreaker game, a little trading places game. We're going to do a veggie swap edition. I want you to talk about produce because I know how important it is to you. I know a couple of the places that I just mentioned working with Chef Keller, working with Meadowwood, how important the garden is and, and touching the soil and the produce. So what I want to do is take a couple vegetables that are in vogue right now that are super hot right now. Talk about if you're into them, not shit on them because they're overhyped because there's lots of that. However, take the things that we love that are, that are now just a part of the food culture at mass and say, if you're into this, let's go down a rabbit hole further to go deep and have depth around the type of foods that we are consuming. You ready to play? Dude, I'm, I'm loving it. Veggie swap. Let's go. Let's, let's veggie swap. So first thing I want you to do, talk to us about kale. Kale oh, is having kale. a moment and a half. It is everywhere. I mix it into salad all the time. And at the same time, I'm like, man, I wish I was thinking about other produce as well. So if people are into kale, what are a couple of other leafy green type bitter green type things that we could and maybe should be consuming to round out our game yeah so i'm gonna go ahead and preface by also saying that i love kale and i've seen i've had my mind blown by kale so many times and i've been disappointed by kale so many times at meadowood uh chef christopher costow he had a canapé with kale and chorizo that actually had no chorizo it's just the spices of chorizo done with kale and i swear to god that he took every kind of umami meaty element of kale and like concentrated it paired perfectly with like the flavor of chorizo. Any kind of green that you can eat fresh and uh, you can wilt down, um, I think it's a good sub for kale. I mean, those are the two things that I love it for. Swiss chard has, I think a little bit more of that concentrated umami and you get the beautiful color, especially from like rainbow shard uh, stems, which are great, just shaved thin and uh, like uh, curled in ice water, make a beautiful garnish just because their colors just pop. Mustard greens, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a flavor that if you're just talking about like a, a wilted kale versus a, a wilted mu- a mustard green, the flavor is just so much more aggressive and can pair great with things, you know, like pork, pork and kale go great. I think mustard greens and kale is, you know, just a, a se- separate layer of, uh, of kind of flavor intensity that you could swap that in and out of. I like the point that you made of eating raw and cooked. I think that that they lend themselves to both is a uniqueness that I think is the thing to cultivate potentially. So I'm very into it. Brussels sprouts, the fried Brussels sprout. 
I remember Michael Simon doing a fried Brussels sprout 2006 into 2007. I was like, that's going to be big. And I remember we had one of the first fried Brussels sprouts anywhere in Denver at Kevin Taylor's The Opera House because I was like, yep, that's a thing. And they're still holding strong and it's 2020. And that was 2007 that we were doing fried Brussels sprouts. So Brussels sprouts, what is an alternative if you, again, want to go depth into that flavor profile, that style? Yeah, think about Brussels. I mean, there's a million kind of different cabbages or brassicas that I, I would loop into it. And I'm, I love different kinds of, you know, Chinese and Japanese produce. And there's a million different cabbages that you can mess around with. Gailan, soy, bok choy. There's literally a million that have such kind of nuance and flavors to each other that if you want to really micro pair with flavors that you're getting from a specific protein or a specific vegetable that you want to enhance, you can look at this kind of index of 16 different cabbages to really find what's going to work the best, which one's going to be slightly more pungent, which one's going to be slightly more floral, which one's going to have a million different differences in texture. You know, uh, just aside from that, I love, absolutely love kohlrabi. Though it's not kind of in the same, uh, like, vein as a Brussels sprout in terms of looking like a small cabbage, this is much more like a, like a radish or a turnip with the flavor of a, of a cabbage. Those are, I mean, you talk about a vegetable that you can manipulate a thousand different ways, eat fresh, cured, smoked, uh, roasted, just a really incredible vegetable. Kohlrabi, if you haven't tried it, highly recommend it cauliflower cauliflower is having a little bit of moment you got cauliflower rice all over the place you got the buffalo cauliflower what is something else that people are into cauliflower that could take them a little further down that rabbit geez well like in terms of the versatility of cauliflower like i really give it up to the modern day inventus uh, or maybe just the people who are working around specific dietary boxes where they've managed to take cauliflower and manipulate it into everything that you crave as an adult that you would eat as a kid, you know, pizza crust or, you know, any so incredibly versatile on that front. And um, you'll see cauliflower, everything these days. I don't think that there's a single vegetable that I've found yet that can replace that in a good way. In terms of an actual cauliflower um, for roasting, whether you're breaking them down whole, uh, breaking them down or roasting them whole, or, you know, again, using that raw application, there, there's better things out there. Like uh, I love uh, broccoli Romanesco, which again is an eye-turning vegetable. It's got this fractal pattern that I think uh, it follows the Fibonacci sequence. So like when you look at it, it's just in this absolutely impressive pattern that you only see perfected in nature. Absolutely gorgeous. Funny enough, but we've tried growing a lot of different broccolis and cauliflowers in our garden. And we, depending on the year, um, we get a lot of kind of variance in how they turn out. Last year, we, it almost, it sprouted very, very early. So what you had was these mini florets that were copious. I mean, you'd have 20 times the amount of normal florets, but they were all super, super small. You know, as from working in fine dining so many years, I kind of have an affinity for small vegetables. And it just kind of gives you an ability to break up the plate um, when you're plating that you kind of just don't have if you have a very large bulk vegetable. Even normal cauliflowers just grown in a different way can have a totally different result. And I talked about like kind of the size, but also flavor and texture differences that are, uh, they're just, it, it's, it's eye-opening to see, you know, the same product that you see in a grocery store just grown in a different way come out totally different. That's the kind of stuff yeah. I live for as a chef. Talk more about your experience with actually growing some of these that you just talked about there for a little bit. Famous 
garden at the French Laundry, Meadowood, another famous garden as well. And give us a little insider view on what it was like interacting those gardens, yeah. specifically so, as it pertains to culture. I think I'm more interested in that potentially than I am the actual product that came out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of bring this full circle, I had worked in Hawaii for a while at a couple of, you know, really good restaurants that I kind of left with a, a firm foundation, I thought, you know, cooking. When I came to California, you know, especially wine country, you're beat over the head with terroir and how special the area is and 20 some soils that make up that environment that make it a very special place. In Napa, you know, you look at the two real heavy hitters of three Michelin star dining and it's the restaurant at Meadowood under chef Christopher Costow and uh, the French Laundry under Thomas Keller. And the common denominator is, is that they all have their own farm in Napa. And you talk about, you know, wine coming from a specific area that coveted. It's the same in food. Like there's the same terroir factor in a carrot that there is a grape. So being in Napa, the people who are truly harnessing the, the power of the valley and what made it, you know, regionally specific and special, um, where the people who are growing their ingredients as close to, you know, their restaurants as possible. It also gave, you know, I saw a huge kind of edge onto harvesting. If you're trying to talk to purveyor at the farmer's market and you're saying like, I only want carrots that are one inch long for this dish, it's going to be very hard to do that on a large scale. Um, but when you have the complete control and ownership over that, it bleeds into, you know, what you're able to do on the plate, but it also bleeds into the culture. You know, I got thrown into the garden at Meadowood and I had, had no garden experience. This wasn't like a, like something that I was raised into. I got hired at Meadowood to replace a girl who ended up not leaving. And so they had no place for me, but I had already lost, left my job. They threw me in the garden and just to see kind of from seed to plant and gain product knowledge of these ingredients that I had never come across before was just such a, a, a giant step forward for, you know, how I was going to perform in those environments and for the love that I have of esoteric produce now. I had worked for Thomas Keller at Ad Hoc. It was one of the few kind of restaurants at that point that I had entered that were not the pirate ship. They were not the, the counter call. It was people who were all looked a certain way, spoke a certain way. It's uh a heavy level of discipline that I had just seen nowhere else. Um, and that was totally reflected in their garden. You would you go to the French Laundry Garden and it is beautiful and bountiful and the rows are clear. They are perfect. As I kind of progressed throughout, not necessarily fitting the mold of the Tom's Keller restaurant group, uh, went over to the restaurant at Meadowood and saw a completely different culture. Still the same coveted three Michelin stars and still operating at a very intense level, but the cooks didn't have to fold their towels a certain way. You were allowed to kind of speak how you speak and your personality didn't need to fit a, a form. It was, it was very much like express yourself and we're going to work off the creativity and kind of the dynamic that's formed from having all these different characters with different experiences and letting them do their, their thing. And you would see that reflected in the garden, just to kind of bring this full circle. You go to the, the Meadowood Garden, it's almost, it almost looks wild and natural. It still has the same kind of bountiful look as the French Laundry Garden, but it looks, it's done in a, almost a, like a holistic, natural way. And that's how Chef Costello looks at food. He totally will take a, uh, an environment or, or something and use that as the kind of uh, the muse for the dish, the inspiration for the dish. So I think that, that the two cultures kind of mirrored their garden. You have the TKRG 
garden, which is immaculate, precise, and linear. And then you have the Meadowood garden, which is almost like this beautiful free-for-all that amazing things come out. Listening to you, definitely was clear that you fit the vibe and the culture at Meadowood more so than at Thomas Keller restaurant. However, when we go through kind of the background, the person that you called out as one of the people that you really wanted to talk about was Joshua Schwartz. For everyone listening, if this is your first episode listening, go back and listen to episode number three with Jose Salazar, who also gave Joshua Schwartz a shout out. And we talked to Joshua on that episode. I fucking love it that the fact that you and Jose don't actually know each other, worked within the same restaurant group at different sides of the country at different times, yet both wanted to give those daps to Joshua. So I want to talk about Joshua a little bit because two people I highly, highly respect who have done it in the game both called out Joshua. So let's talk about it. Dude, it is so funny that we both mentioned Joshua because like, you know, the restaurant industry is small, but it ain't that small. Josh isn't a household name because he is one of those unsung heroes. You know, Josh is, uh, I met Josh in Napa, so after his days of per se, and he was the only, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say this backhandedly, but it was, he was doing the best things in the Valley for a winery chef. A lot of the winery chefs, in my opinion, you know, weren't taking it seriously. And I think a lot of the, the, the kind of rationale behind it is, A, people aren't coming here for the food. B, no one's going to notice. No media is going to come around at it. For a chef, that can be kind of demoralizing depending on how big your ego is and it can kind of drive your performance. Josh never let that happen. Josh is doing, you know, some of the most ambitious, awesome food that you can get at a winery. And it's a, it's a steal. So if you're ever in the Valley, go see Josh at Del Beto. His depth of knowledge of charcuterie, dry aging, his pasta. Oh my God, it'll make you cry. It's just, he's so good at what he does. Josh is, I never worked with Josh. I never, me and Josh, never, I never worked for Josh. Josh and I have done a couple of dinners together and we both highly respect what each other does, but we've never really had to work 12 hour shift, seven days a week right next to each other. But I didn't need that to, to, to get to know Josh and to really understand who he is as a chef to garner that respect. When I, when I made the move from, or when I was even in the, the, the beginning stages of considering a move from restaurants into personal chefing, Josh is the first person that I went to, just in terms of getting some real life kind of insight onto what breaking away from the only thing that you've ever known is like and kind of what to expect. And, you know, if he thought it was a good move and he gave me some, some, some great kind of words of wisdom that, you know, I'll never forget and that he certainly didn't have to do. Throughout every kind of big move that I made, I've gone to Josh and bounce an idea off of. He's not, he's not only like a mentor, he's like a brother. I could come to him about some personal stuff or I could come to him about, you know, something that's very specific to the restaurant industry and he guides me all the way. I think it's very interesting how quick we are to pass judgment within the industry on what other people within the industry's choices are to be a part of the industry. Long-winded way of saying, sometimes we think being the chef of an award-winning restaurant is, quote, more important than any other level. And this show is all about breaking that down. That Jesse at Catch-23 is as important as anybody in the industry because he spent time with you to teach you, right? So that dynamic at play is really, really important to this show. It's very easy for us to go 
Josh going from per se to a winery because wineries aren't at that level into personal chef, into becoming an instructor, into consulting is almost like those who can't do teach that mentality is like, oh, you're not relevant anymore. I want to touch on that because I want to break down that bullshit very, very quickly. And I know as somebody who's done all of it, gotten all the accolades as I embarrassed you with earlier, now thinking about the way that you're navigating, still expressing yourself through being a chef at this level. Break that down for us a little bit. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and really take this slow because I'm still working through a lot of it. And I'm going to say some things that are maybe a hot take, but it's simply my take. You know, I think at the end of the day, it boils down to what gets your rocks off on a culinary, you know, as a culinary and as a, as a chef. For me, it's always been pleasing people with food. And it took me a while to break away from the ego where I wanted to show that to as many people as possible. And I wanted as many people to hear about it. And I wanted people shouting from the mountaintops you know, my name to be synonymous with fine dining. I've moved into the the space of the headspace of seeing that on a more intimate level with people who know deeply who I am and respect me as more than just an experience that they're having on one night that they're, you know, either saved up for there's, you know, special occasion or something like that. It's a very intimate thing, personal chefing. For me, like I wrestled with a lot of different things, you know, right off the bat, I wrestled with imposter syndrome and Stockholm syndrome of the restaurant industry kind of saying I'm not doing enough or I'm not working hard enough or this is a step to the side and not a step forward and I I was on you know one track I was one track mind to open restaurants and have a restaurant group and all that from the outside or from kind of you know looking at what it would be it definitely felt like this would be a step to the side um, and that I would eventually become irrelevant from that now, and this is going to sound crazy, but I only really work five or six hours a day tops. I just cook dinner for my clients and for the company that they're having. It's a very intimate thing being, you know, the only person in there. I'm, I'm really their only kind of house employee. So I know them very well. I spend more time with them than any other people. I used to leave after five or six hours and be like, I haven't worked enough. I need to do another five or six hours to feel like I've actually done something. I realized that, that doesn't really fit in with personal chefing. I mean, you're, if, if I'm around them 10, 12 hours a day, like that's an intrusion that might make me feel better about myself, but you know, they need some alone time where they can have their kitchen and their, you know, their living room to themselves and not have to hear, you know, pots and pans or, you know, as much as I try to minimize that, it is a very intimate relationship. I mean, you see their highs, their lows, you could see their fights, you could see, you know, some things that might scare you. Luckily, I have, and my clients are, you know, fantastic. I've always been raised on, you know, your work ethic is everything, and you're the, you're the first one in, you're the last one out. That doesn't really work anymore. But I remember a specific moment where um, I was on one of my first trips for my clients, and I was flying out to Nantucket, and I got put on a very small plane to go from Boston to the island. I ended up uh, being a little nervous because it was like a twin-engine Cessna, the only other girl on the flight with me was a, was a life coach. And uh, so I kind of nervously started speaking. She kind of helped me work through a lot of my stuff. And we put, you know, the pros and the cons against each other of, you know, personal chefing and restaurant chefing. And at the end of the day, all of my cons about personal chefing all boiled down to ego. As much as I kind of knew that back in my mind, for someone else to say it, for me to confront it, you know, full on that the only reason that I was, you know, complaining was, or, or, or kind of conflicted was that I wasn't getting written about. I wasn't 
eligible for awards. I wasn't able to kind of complete the missions that I had set out for myself of opening restaurants and getting Michelin stars and things like that. But on the flip side, you know, I have this amazing quality of life. I have time for hobbies and a family. I have, I'm able to travel. I have the means to go do, experience the, go eat at the restaurants that I want to eat at and the time to do so. And it's just, it's been an incredible change, but I've also had to really reinvent who I am in that process. At 1313, I lived and breathed that restaurant. I was there, you know, 90 hours a week and was completely creatively satisfied. The restaurant closed after the fires. It was like someone had cut my face off and put a different face on. Like, I didn't know who I was. The restaurant was an extension of me, was all I really had. And so I really had to break out of that and figure out like who I was as a person, not just a restaurant chef. Adam, I got to tell you, I really, really appreciate you talking about this. It hits home for me a lot of levels. Same way, I remember the moment when I said, holy shit, I don't think I want to own a dozen restaurants and win all the awards anymore. I still have so much ego and bravado and so much to give to the industry. How do I do that? And for sure, over the last five years, have struggled with that and tried to find a place. And, and even this podcast was a moment where I said, am I doing this truly for the industry to have more meaningful conversations to talk about why and who before, what, and how? Or am I doing it because I want to be relevant? And I don't know that I know the answer to that. I'm trying to stay grounded and have conversations and talk about other people's experiences. It is something that still I'm conflicted with. Where is my intent and trying to stay grounded to that intent? So I really appreciate it, man. Like that's not easy stuff to talk about for us when we think we have the talent and the ability and are somehow entitled to be able to win those accolades. So really, really important. I don't know how we follow Josh and, and that conversation, which was huge and profound. And, but I do want to talk about one more person. I want to talk about Michael Passmore and tell us who that is and why that's somebody so important and specifically was somebody that you wanted to acknowledge as one of your unsung hospitality heroes. Michael Passmore runs a fish farm. He makes caviar uh, from his sturgeon. He is, uh, he was not in the fish industry and moved into it just from learning a lot, having a, a, a large interest in it. I, I think the, the, the goal was caviar all, all along, but they bought this crazy, crazy like property in Sacramento that has like this mansion on it. I was first introduced to him there, like a little field trip from uh, ad hoc. Again, like where everyone, you know, is prim proper, speaks, you know, eloquently and refers to each other as chef all the time. And he fit in a box. And this guy pulls up at this mansion in like an ATV with like, 70 beers in the back of it and it's like come on y'all like let's go take a take a drive just like the I, I expected all this pretense from a caviar dude and he was just the most fun dude I've ever met we all swam we me and him were swimming in the tank with the, the sturgeon who are you know four feet taller than me and just had a great time so when I moved into my position as executive chef I immediately wanted to work with him I knew his product was great but I didn't know the first thing about how to communicate with purveyors and you know how really how like ordering and minimums worked and how to really navigate that how to how to get the most bang out of my buck and to find the price breaks and really work well with purveyors and he was just there 100% of the way and he would he would build me up like we would talk about you know what I needed for that week and then he would be like so how are you doing you know and we talk about kind of what what was going on with me and the restaurant and those are not 
things that you normally get when you call an order line, you place an order to, to really hear, you know, what kind of leadership advice he would have for me or, you know, what he could work with me around my budget and my food costs and uh, just there every step of the way. And I know that I'm not the only one, you know, I, I think he, he looks for chefs who are talented, who are going to respect his product best as possible, um, who are, have the knowledge and wherewithal to give him feedback on what he's doing and how his product is, but also on the personal level to really build up. And we need that. <laughs> we need that as chefs. You know, we need people who will help, you know, work for us. I think a, a good purveyor makes everything possible and a bad purveyor makes everything impossible. And he is just the top notch best. You're dropping pearls left and right. Touched on how people at every level of the industry need to matter. They do matter. They're just as important. They're part of an ecosystem that allows chefs to be propped up to a certain level of prestige, right? And so it's too, oh man, I've been guilty of it too, of like treating our purveyors as like lucky to be working with us. And it's really mm -hmm. the other way around. It really, really is. So I appreciate that and how bad we can be as chefs at communicating with people that we think are our downlines versus knowing that we're all at the same level and having that respect I think is so important. So man, I'm excited to talk to Michael Passmore because I'm sure he's going to have lots of fun isms about you, but about chefs at large, having dealt with so many chefs over the years and having that kind of relationship you want to shout out some names? Go for yeah, it, man. Hell yes. I would love to. First of all, big old shout out to Chef Rick for, for really pushing me into this industry because I wouldn't be here without you. There would be no podcast and I would just be very sad. Um, Donnie Edwards, Chef of Catch 23, uh, Delroy Powell, uh, and Jesse, I forgot your last name, but I love you to death. Jensen and Evan, you, you and Evan, man, really laid it into me at, uh, at Kevin Taylor's The Opera House. Things I'll never forget. Frank Bonanno, all his restaurants in Denver, but mainly in Mizuna, where I cut my teeth after uh, the Opera House. Hunter Pritchett, who has, uh, you know, guided me every step of the way. Truly awesome. Gotten me ready for every big step. Stephen McCary, Royce uh, for really, you know, <laughs> breaking me in, you know. Sonny Acosta from Alan Wong's really left an impact. Alan Wong himself, the next step. We've got uh, Kevin Carballo from at uh, the time, Chef Mava Restaurant and Kevin Hirahara, both awesome people. Matt Looney, my man. Uh, Chef Kostow, thank you for blowing my mind and showing me how to look at food through a different lens and create something special out of it. Um, big thanks. Chef Kat, who's now in LA, but was the chef de cuisine at uh, Meadowood. My protector, um, just the best. She kept me employed there for the better part of a uh, year and a half. Miles, Howard Coe. Carl Alexander, who um, we fought like to the like cats and dogs on the garbage station. He pretty much got me fired, but now we're like some of the best of friends just through working, you know, through the industry and, you know, catching up and, you know, good stuff. Um, the true unsung heroes of my time at 1313, my dishwashers, Irma and Ishmael. Irma, who would make the best mole I've ever had. I'm going a, I'm to a air her secret ingredient right now. It's uh, fermented bananas and animal crackers. Like, if you, if you don't know, then you don't know, and you shouldn't know. Best mole ever. Uh, Ron and Candy Abke, my gardeners from 1313 Maine. Incredible people. Raul Mendez, my sous chef, who's now out here, personal chefing. And I know that there's more that I missed. I want to thank my girlfriend, Kathy, putting up with me. My mom, my mom, Susan. She believed in me every step of the way. And my, my dad, who passed away last year, Alan Ross, my, my just the best dude. Um, the two of them, my mom and dad, really pushed me to be the best at whatever 
I was going to do. They knew it was food. And, you know, I know a lot of uh, parents who would talk their, their kids out of a notoriously low earning, stressful, um, crazy career like the food service industry. But they believed in me every step of the way and they just wanted me to be the best. So um, thank you so much to them. Let's finish with giving some people those words to live by. We always like to give people an opportunity to take a little something into the world, make it a better place. You say seasoning, balance, execution, trust your gut. Talk about what that means to you. So I kind of tried to break these down one in terms of if I had one piece of advice to give, you know, cooks strictly about cooking, it would be seasoning, balance, and execution. And really the sum of those parts, if those are all done right, you will not have bad food. You can plate it differently. You can change little things about it. But those three things, if you can nail, like you'll never put a bad plate out. And all of that kind of just involves tasting and having a firm foundation and whatnot. But seasoning, you know, simply salt and pepper. Having the right amount of salt on something, I think, is the first foundation. You can make an amazing dish, not season it with salt at all, and you will never taste the rest of those ingredients. Balance, we're talking about the balance between fat and acid. Um, if you can have that balance, that's what makes food craveable is that that proper balance it's what's going to please your palate and then make it water and then make you want another bite and then execution simply treating ingredients with respect from start to finish properly cleaning properly trimming properly cooking properly serving making sure the food's hot all of those little things that come down to the execution if those are all in line and you're seasoned and you're balanced you're going to put good food that's something that i you know think back to you know, when I'm cooking or when I'm creating a dish. And one of my cooks from 1313 got it tattooed on himself. So that's how you know it's a good quote. There's been a lot of times in my life that I've gone against my gut and deeply regretted those decisions. But generally, if I feel good about it, no red flags are raised with me. Like, you know, it, things tend to work out, but I'm a good, strong judge of character. So I put that on there. But also, I've been working with a lot of fermentation these days, uh, making different koshos and kojis and you know, making my own hot sauces and kombucha and things like that. I always err on the side of caution, maybe less so than other chefs. If something is questionable, I'll always taste it first, sit on it overnight and see how my gut handles that. But that's, I think you need to do that when you're really working with the experimental. I had no doubt that we'd finish with something that was both practical and profound advice, as you said. So I appreciate that. Adam Ross, unbelievable catching up with you. Right away when we got on the phone, I was just like, Wow, so good to hear your voice. Super proud of everything that you've accomplished. Super proud of everything that you're going to accomplish. And I think now that you're in a reflective place, I know you're going to do a lot to bring mentorship and value back into the ecosystem of hospitality because it was given to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we're back, everybody. Talking with Michael Passmore of Passmore Ranch. Adam gave a shout out as one of his unsung hospitality heroes. I grew up, I was born uh, in Texas and uh, spent the majority of my early, early life there to the completion of my high school. I went to the Marine Corps and spent some time all around the world. And from there, went back to Texas for, for a few years before moving to California in 1999. And I've been here since. What sparked the move to California? Had a job opportunity in the uh, industry that I was in at the time. And so I thought that, uh, why not? I'll give, it a, I'll give it a whirl. I'll come out for, at that time, I thought I'd come out for about three years to the land of fruits and nuts. I was like, boy, I don't want to 
don't want to spend too much time in California and uh, lo and behold, once I cut out here, uh, not only did I meet the, the wife and my, my partner and uh, person I could not do without, uh, but I've really grown to uh, love and appreciate Northern California and now especially uh, the ranch here. How do you find your way into sturgeon? You know, sturgeon was a, it really was a happenstance, fish farming in general. Uh, folks often focus on sturgeon, but we raise few varieties. And uh, although I do have a certain affinity for sturgeon, uh, we, shortly after my wife and I got married, we knew that we wanted a little bit of uh, elbow room. And so we focused on finding a piece of property. Uh, and the more we looked, the more we found that uh, we could get a few more acres than less acres. And if we were willing to develop it. And so we happened to purchase a piece of raw dirt. And by that, I mean, it looked like a rolling pasture and did not have electricity, water, utilities, anything on it. But that piece of property uh, happened to be next door to my now good friend and mentor, Ken Beer. And Ken Beer has been farming fish for now, gosh, over 40 years at least. I mean, uh, and most importantly, he was one of the team at UC Davis in the early 80s that figured out how to domestically raise white sturgeon. I've been taking cues from Ken. I, I, would, not, uh, I would not exist uh, as a fish farmer if it was not for, for Ken and the happenstance of him being my neighbor. Adam talked about taking this trip up and checking out the ranch and Kind of, you know, having been to farms before and being like, all right, it's going to be kind of whatever. And then talks about jumping in the water. Clearly, from the laugh, you remember this story. Uh, what is, what's it like pictures. having chefs out, out to the farm? And then specifically, somebody like Adam with that kind of exuberance to just say, fuck it, I'm jumping in. First of all, it's one of my absolute favorite things to do probably only seconded by spending time in their kitchens or at an event or otherwise working side by side with them because it, uh, it gives both of us uh, an in-depth perspective of what's going on. And I always find that I'm learning from them. And, and I hope the same is the case uh, when they get, come out to the ranch, although uh, sometimes we do less touring and more drinking beer, shooting guns, and riding motorcycles. But that visit was uh, particularly memorable because it was uh, Chef Katie and the whole crew from Ad Hoc back when Adam was there. And yeah, he uh, I think I had only ever had one other chef who felt so connected to the fish. But Adam literally, I, I call him Aquaman. That, that's, uh, that's my nickname for Adam because I, he looked at me. I mean, it was like, it was like my pop looking at me like, can I get in the water? Can I, can I, can I, huh? And I'm looking over at uh, Chef Katie and she's just kind of looking like, holy crap, is this guy really can it? And, and is Michael going to be cool with this or whatever? I'm like, oh yeah, go, go on, go, go be at one with your fish there. And I have some absolutely incredible pictures of just Adam just like swimming with uh, with some of our caviar sturgeon, and so they're you know, these are six, seven, sometimes eight foot long fish, massive fish. It still makes me smile thinking about uh, him and the enjoyment that Aquaman there got out of uh, swimming with his fishes out there. It, it was fantastic. It's just the embodiment of, of who Adam is. 
I was not surprised at all when he was telling this story. I was like, that is a hundred percent you just to dive right in. So I, I loved hearing that. Talk to me a little bit about just being connected with chefs and what that means and the appreciation that you have when you see that level of appreciation in your products, in your land, in your process from somebody like Adam or chefs in general. I think the genesis of our relationships perhaps was as we got into the culinary, you know, direct kitchens, as we identified that being a strong point of ours, the more I worked with chefs, you know, I realized that we were birds of a feather, basically. You work in a command and response environment, very familiar with that, uh, with my time in the military, and I thrive on it too. Uh, your brigade system is, uh, you know, somewhat similar to a military ranking system, and 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 you're all pulling together for the same thing and you do a lot of you do a lot of shitty things sometimes too that you know it just it just sucks and you get through it i respond to you know i i'm comfortable in that environment and so working together with you guys uh relationships began to form and before i knew it i had closer re- actually not not closer per se but no other industry had i worked in outside of the military had I developed such deep friendships. Didn't mean that we weren't holding each other accountable for to uh, deliver an excellent product and those things. That is, it is one of the things that drives me. I, I enjoy relationships. I think that they, I think they make the world go around. And when you can count on one another form, not only can they count on me and my team to deliver what we say we will, when we say we will, and quality and consistency, that they've come to expect from us, but I can also count on them to put it on their diner's plate uh, in a consistent manner that's going to represent us just as well. The flip side of, of those relationships too is, is that it provides a backing for both of us when, when one of us may fall short of expectations and allows us to have a, a backboard or an experience with one another that pushes us through those and helps us to reach a, a solution that in the end serves that serves that diner because that's at the end of the day that's both of our that's both of our guests it makes a lot of sense to me how you're feeling a connection directly to the guests michael i cannot wait to talk to you more about the relationships i think it's so so important the way that you've navigated the position that you've put yourself in the position that you're putting chefs in to succeed and having that level of guidance it was clear in talking to Adam, just the fact that when we're talking about, hey, who's somebody who you really want to acknowledge in the industry is what we say. Usually it's somebody that they worked with at a restaurant, specifically in a restaurant. And to have him give you that shout out just speaks to the depth of those relationships. Honestly, the memories that you formed with somebody like Adam. So grateful for your guidance and the impact that you're having on the industry as a whole and Adam specifically. Thank you for talking with us. Yeah, I was truly humbled. When Adam gave me that call and there's not much better in life when, when you know you've had a positive effect on someone. So thank you. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing and spreading that love and uh, promoting the relationships and what we can do for one another. It's all about those relationships. Cheers, Michael. Indeed. Take care, Jensen. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.